Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 223, the search for episode 222 episode of the National Security Law Podcast, brought <laughs> to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday night, August 8th, 2022, and we are not broadcasting live from Mar-a-Lago, although we kind of wish we were. I'm it, would, it, would be, it would sure be interesting if we were. Uh, Wait, can we make that happen? I, I, you're the dean. I, well, I'll check my contract, but I don't think any Mar-a-Lago-related stuff is in there. But I'm sure, but I'm, sure there, I'm sure there's some donors. But Steve, there are some papers out there, it sounds like, where the Mar-a-Lago name is mentioned. What's going on tonight? Oh, my gosh. So um, first, hi. Nice to see you. Been a while. It has been, it has been a while. I'm sure it's um, only been, what, a week or so since our last episode? Yeah, I think this might be a record. I think it's been six. Um, oh, ouch. Yeah. So um, as we were getting ready to record, um, news started breaking that the FBI had um, apparently, quote, raided, unquote, Mar-a-Lago this afternoon and uh, uh, taken out a whole bunch of documents. Uh, by the way, Fox News was complaining that they just took out entire boxes without bothering to go through them. I'm like... Do you think the FBI just sits there and like goes through the documents at the crime scene? Like, does anyone understand how any of this works? Um, anyway, as we're recording at what eight thirty Central Time, aka the top of the eighth inning in the Mets Reds game, um, the, the there's there's no confirmation about what the warrant was based on, but there's a lot of sort of in, uh, uh, anonymous sourcing that this is related to the wrongful retention and or destruction of sensitive, if not classified, national security documents in violation of a couple of different statutes that make it a crime, even for people who are authorized to have those documents to, you know. So I, I don't know, Bobby, like, is this the, was the point to use, like, document, um, how do I say, maliciousness, document malfeasance, as a hook to get into Mar-a-Lago, or is like this actually really a document-driven investigation? Oh, so interesting. You know, sort of an Al Capone strategy. I was going to say they got Al Capone for tax evasion, but I, so you know, I think the, it's worth saying that we don't know a lot. I will say that there's been a ton of reaction on conservative Twitter, my favorite place. Um, you spend too much time there, Steve. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, it's not like that's relevant. It's not like these are the people who are going to be in charge in, you know, five months. Um, Let, let's for, let's just give everybody the run of show real quick and then let's dive in on this topic. So I, I got to talk about Kevin McCarthy. I, I know. We'll, we'll definitely get to that. You know, he's just, um, he's just the next speaker of the House. What does he know? Are you, are you calling the election? <sighs> I, I, you know, I'll put money on it if it means that I lose money and keep the democracy. That seems like a good trade-off. The hedge. It's a hedge. Yes. So we're going to talk about the this late-breaking story about Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, obviously we don't, we don't yet know the details. We're going to do the best we can based on what what's out there following up on the threads that Steve laid out for us just now. Uh, and then we're going to pivot, of course, to this remarkable event, the, uh, the airstrike that killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, the then head of uh, core al-Qaeda and successor to bin Laden. There's a, there's a lot to be said about that. We'll, we'll, we'll kind of run the traps on the legal analysis and kind of put things in context. Um, it is in some way sort of a, a bookend or it feels like a bookend moment for the post 9-11 period. So we'll offer some reflections on that. And then Steve, you've been busy in the military justice realm and uh, we've got Larrabee to talk about, but that's not all. We've got we've got some other calf business um, relating to the unanimity requirement, if I've got that right. 
Yes. Um, so just interesting developments um, in the world of uh, Steve's litigation foibles. <laughs> it's, you know Prevailed. what? That's a new seminar, 397S. <laughs> Writing seminars. <laughs> I mean, I'm you know two weeks, two weeks and two days from the my shadow docket seminar. So why don't we for frivolity, we'll we'll run the traps, of course, on the Mets. Complete, uh, uh, you know, real strong stand against the Braves. We'll talk Mets stuff. We'll talk the beginning of the new law school semester coming up upon mm-hmm. it, and uh, whatever else we can come up with. Um, but first, let's let's return. I read a to- I read a book. Oh, did you? Yeah. Wait, preview. What's the book? Um, it's uh, Brad Snyder's Democratic Justice. It's his new biography of Frankfurter, which I've been meaning to read and finally got all the way through. Okay, cool. All right. So we got a lot to cover. You know, we got our work cut out for us. It's, it's almost like we took off since July, uh, June 27th. Uh, so here we are on August 8th. We're back. And by the way, we have actually kind of committed to this Monday night recording time slot. So. <laughs> <laughs> We might don't scoff. We might actually deliver on this. Um, you know, the- I, I, I think I think I think one of us might be underestimating the extent to which once the semester starts, um, free time. You know, even this little sliver of free time is likely to disappear. But I think you you're know. in more trouble in that respect than than me. I think uh, Monday. I think Monday nights are going to be okay for me. Maybe <laughs> you, you heard it here first, dear oh, listeners. Excuse, should I not have said that? No. Nope. Uh, all right, yeah, so, nothing, nothing, nothing ever goes wrong at law schools on Mondays. Well, it's a little known fact, right? Mondays are like the perfect day. All the problems are saved for Tuesday, I guess. <sighs> Bobby. <sighs> I know, rookie Dean, rookie Dean comments. Okay, Mar-a-Lago, let's, let's set the table with the uh, statute that we think is probably an issue here and put it in context for the non-lawyer listeners with uh, grand jury uh, investigative powers and search warrants applications, what would the process have been, et cetera, that, that whole kettle of fish. Uh, starting with the theory that's currently prevailing, which is there is presumably, or there may be a pending criminal investigation into a violation of the federal criminal laws that relate to records retention, possibly including, as, so there, there could be presidential records, right? Yep. And then separately, there could be national defense information or classified information. Yep. Do, are we talking about different potential or maybe overlapping potential criminal statutes here? Um, yes, depending upon what they find, depending upon the circumstances in which they find it. Um, right. You know, um, there's 18 U.S.C. 1924, which is about the wrongful retention of classified information. Um, there's 18 U.S.C. 2071B, which is about the sort of mutilation or spoliation of documents, even if you are authorized to be in possession of them. Well, let's um, say it willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies or destroys the same. Uh, Three year maximum on that and. Well, this is interesting. It says, and shall forfeit his office and be disqualified from holding any office under the United States. That's that's a phrase not often appended to a criminal statute. That's why 2071 is a a big deal. Um, Because 2071 may sound a little bit like a slap on the wrist kind of statute, but it comes with a fairly significant um, uh, uh, non-prison penalty. Wow. So let's... Given the significance of this, let's read the whole thing. 20, this is 18 U.S. Code 2071B. Whoever having the custody of any such record, and let's back up there, the records in question are what, Steve? Uh, 
Well, where's the cross reference to that? Is that the prior definitional? I think it's an, I think it's an A. Ah, okay. Sorry. Um, any record preceding map, book, paper, document, or other thing filed or deposited with any clerk or officer of any court of the United States or any public office, da, da, da. So, so a comprehensive description of ways of recording information, including the words other thing, that's the thing that if you have custody of any such record, proceeding map, book, document, paper, other thing, if you willfully and unlawfully conceal, remove, mutilate, obliterate, falsify, or destroy the same, um, well, yeah, disqualify from holding office under the United States. So, Steve, let's assume for the sake of argument there, well, let, let me back up. Can you put this in context with prior concerns that arose even while President Trump was in office about his care and handling of official records? Right. There was the whole flushing the flushing the stuff down the toilet. There was the ripping up things when he was done with them. I mean, do we have, you any, know. Do we have any ketchup based concealment? I don't know that I don't know if ketchup is, but I, I saw one story today that there was a former aide who actually took pictures of documents in toilets. Um, <laughs> you know, you gotta you gotta ask yourself, what, what am I involved in when you're pointing your camera in that direction? And that that's something I mean, else. Okay, so there's reason to think that one possibility is what happened tonight was the execution of a search warrant. By the way, friendly listeners, search warrants are issued by federal judges, not by the government itself. This wasn't something what? done by judicial no. involvement. This would have required a probable cause to believe that a that evidence or instrumentalities or, or effects from a crime are uh, likely to be discovered at Mar-a-Lago. And so some judge uh, in Florida in that district would have signed off on this or a magistrate judge probably. And based on that authority, the FBI showed up. There's there's no claim, at least no credible claim, that the FBI didn't have a warrant. This is a warrant-based, judicially authorized, Fourth Amendment-compliant execution of a search is what it seems to be. And the underlying offense that this might relate to, and it could turn out to be something else, but we're speculating, could be the unlawful concealment, removal, or, or destruction of, of government records. Does that, does that sum it up? Yep. All right. Any other more exotic theories to entertain before we move along? I'm sure there are, but I, can, can we just talk about the reaction on the right? I mean, I am, I am. So, um, Kevin McCarthy, who's only you know the the ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, whatever happens in the elections you know, this November, um, here's the statement he put out. He said, I've seen enough. The Department of Justice has reached an intolerable state of weaponized politicization. When Republicans take back the House, we will conduct immediate oversight of this department, follow the facts, and leave no stone unturned. Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar. I mean, did you say, did you say preserve documents? Yeah, so the <laughs> irony seems to be lost on <laughs> this ironic. But like, I mean, he's threatening the attorney general. I mean, meanwhile, here's a Florida state representative. It's time for us in the Florida legislature to call an emergency legislative session and amend our laws regarding federal agencies, sever all ties with DOJ immediately. Any FBI agent conducting law enforcement functions outside the purview of our state should be arrested upon sight. So I have often over the years on the show said, hey, 
you, you spend too much time looking at what people say in social media, especially Twitter, ignore that, don't elevate it, etc. Um, I, I agree very much that it is wildly inappropriate for anybody to uh, turn this into a platform for suggesting that anything uh, inconsistent with ordinary criminal processes going on here. There's no basis for such speculation. I think it's very harmful and inappropriate to immediately jump to demonizing and criticizing the Justice Department and the FBI. But, but it's, it's worse than that. This is the House Judiciary GOP account. If they can do it to a former president, imagine what they can do to you. Like, if they can do what to, if, yes, if they can execute a lawfully obtained search warrant against a former president by, you know, could they do that to you? Right. <laughs> like the, the notion that like Trump is just above the law. We have now gone all the way in on the notion that like it is completely inappropriate for ordinary law, legal processes to be applied to Donald Trump. And, you know, I'm sorry if, you know, there are folks who think that the right thing to do is to ignore this rhetoric. I find it increasingly ominous given how much power these people have. Yeah, no, I think, uh, as I said, this is not appropriate to to turn this into some attack on the FBI and DOJ. And it's, it's disturbing to see that. Well, what happens next? Um, what happens next is, you know, we'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out what was in the safe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there's a. I don't think we mentioned this, right? There's a report there's a that I think Trump himself said they broke into my safe or something. Um, that's interesting. Uh, Steve, normally, is it is it normal to learn what the F, like what would normally happen if the FBI is investigating, say? say a celebrity or something like that? Will we expect to quickly find out the fruits of it? Or would it be normal for a fairly long period to pass where you may or may not know? I mean, you may eventually find out with an indictment, but short of that, like how much transparency should listeners expect? Um, not much right away, but I think it's hard to imagine that we don't get at least some news at some point. It seems likely that there'll be leaks. Um, would it be proper for government officials to overtly, I mean, I think there probably will as a descriptive matter. I think there'll be leaks because yeah. I think the, the global attention on this is going to gonna weigh on it like, like the weight of the ocean on the ocean floor on the journalists who are trying to dig things out. Um, normally, I think in this context, like, no, you, you would not, you, you would find out if and when the next step in the criminal justice process culminated in someone either being indicted or not indicted or somebody being arrested or not arrested. Um, you wouldn't you wouldn't normally sort of get like a report saying, all right, well, here's the deal. Um, but I think I think you're right to predict that we probably will hear something nonetheless. I, that itself is is not a good thing because we're, we're the theme we're trying to consistently advance here is adherence to the rules and the procedures as opposed to personalizing and, and you know, breaking with those things because of a sense of, well, it's my team versus another team. Um so I think we probably will hear about this and who knows whether it ends up being a little bit of a um, not as big a story as tonight social media is seized onto or whether it's going to be. I'm just, listen, I, I don't know what the ultimate story is going to be about Mar-a-Lago and Trump. 
I just, I, I just, I really think that the, uh, I think the reaction is a story unto itself because I think if one is looking for portents of slides toward authoritarianism, you know, the sort of the knee-jerk instinctive reaction, not just from people on the street, but from like senior leaders of the party, <laughs> that this is presumptively, you know, inappropriate and abusive, and that it can't possibly be the case that the ordinary procedures were followed and that the I's were dotted and that the T's were, were crossed. Here, here's is, an interesting yeah. question. Is there any, you know, there, there are rules, for example, policy-driven rules about extra care and procedures taken in the context of, say, uh, it, subpoenas or search warrants directed towards journalists. Right. Do we know whether there are any similar such uh precautionary policies and procedures in place with respect to investigations targeting senior government officials, certainly while they're sitting, right? There are, um, do we, well, look, do I, do I don't, I, I don't, ever... I don't know the answer to that question, but do you honestly think that this search warrant was approved at no higher a level than the special agent in charge of like the Palm beach field office? Well, I, I don't think I suggested that. But, no, but, but, no, but what, I'm saying, like, what I'm saying is like whether or not there are formal procedures in place, I'd be shocked if the FBI director, Christopher Wray, did not personally approve this warrant application. Well, I'd go further. I mean, I guess where I'm getting at is I would assume this one was approved up to the attorney general, don't you think? Or at least that there was – he doesn't approve the activities of the FBI in that operational sense. But I imagine uh, – With his knowledge. Portland was aware – but I also, and, and here I think there are policies that are relevant. This is kind of what I'm driving towards. Uh, I believe that the standard or the proper Justice Department practice is in no way to involve the White House in this sort right. of thing. Right. And that was that was a principle the last administration put under some pressure, as we will recall. Um, and I don't think that there's been any indication so far that there was any White House knowledge of any of this. In fact, I saw one report suggesting as far as White House senior staff knew, they learned about the same same way the rest of us did. There was something on Twitter. Um, this is a tough, tough situation for the Justice Department to be able to pursue an investigation where it may lead when it is touching a, a, a third rail like this. And so, you know, I think some sympathy for the for the folks who are trying to do their jobs tonight is is definitely in order. But I, I see what you're seeing. I see a lot of people coming out politically on social media. I don't follow it as closely, but I'm looking now as we're talking. I see a lot of people coming out and sort of just immediately framing this as as a politicized investigation of a political opponent, which is very ironic, frankly. Um, and I and I really wish people were not doing that. I think it's very inappropriate. And you're right that that's that is a story unto itself. I mean, I think it's, I'll just say, I don't want to belabor this. I don't think it's just, it's much more than inappropriate. It is incredibly dangerous. But Well, I'm going to, you know, I know. Trying, trying to agree with you here. Uh, um, all right. Speaking of things that are incredibly dangerous, how about drone strikes? Well, I, I thought the conclusion of that sentence was going to be, how about the leader of Al-Qaeda? But that's kind of the question that's being bandied about. Um, returning to a classic National Security Law podcast topic, uh, Famously, though not nearly as famously as it would have been if it had happened 10 or 15 years previously, uh, the United States did at last, after basically a two-decade manhunt, locate Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri, originally of Egypt, um, in Kabul. Uh, <laughs> apparently, apparently in a building we used to use. 
I don't, I don't know about that. I, I, I do know that almost all the buildings in that neighborhood, the, the prior owners had them expropriated from them and they were all taken over by Taliban and Haqqani network officials. I believe this one's associated with uh, a person, a senior person in the Haqqani network. Um, it's worth emphasizing as we talk about that, that uh, the Taliban's like, like many other things, it's, it's a they, not an it. There are a lot of factions, a lot of different groups. There's an interesting question here as to how widespread the, clearly, clearly, at least I think the Haqqani leadership understood exactly who was there and what they were doing. They were, they were, they were sheltering him. Um, whether and to what extent other non-Haqqani uh, parts of the Taliban regime uh, were similarly aware, I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they were, but it's interesting. And, and one wonders if, if maybe, just maybe, there was some amount of uh, inside regime cooperation, maybe some intelligence, maybe somebody picking up that, what, what is it, $25 million reward? Um, query, can you pay the reward if somebody on the, the specially designated terrorist list is the one who provides the tip? Uh, do you have to go to the State Department to get a license to pay the reward without violating the material support statute or the uh, the IEPA sanctions? In any event, they located Zawahiri. They watched him for a long time. They determined through a pattern of life analysis that in the mornings he liked to go out on that balcony and read and would be there. And they got a, uh, I think it's the RX-9, Steve, is that the ammunition that's the... Uh, it's a kinetic force and blades weapon rather than an explosive version of a Hellfire missile. Uh, it's it's a big giant flying bullet with a bunch of knives and blades attached. And the the point of that is to minimize. Uh, there's no blast radius. There is an impact radius of sorts for sure by definition. Right there's no from blast. the kinetic force of the of the of the projectile itself. Right. So it, it's sort of the, the, the state of the art, for better or worse, it is the state of the art in weaponry designed to prevent uh, collateral damage. And it looks like they went to some, some pains waiting for an opportunity when they felt they could fire that weapon in a way that was not likely to kill bystanders. Um, the U.S. position publicly has been that they succeeded in doing that. Um, so they got him. And, and it seems there's no doubt on, on the government's part that we don't obviously have people on the ground to take DNA samples and such. They seem 100% convinced that was indeed Ayman al-Zawahiri. Um, Steve, the, the legal analysis of this, why don't we run the traps on first the domestic analysis and then the international analysis? Domestically speaking, uh, the first question would be the classic separation of powers question when force is being used. Uh, the executive branch made a decision to use force. Uh, is it the sort of thing that requires congressional authorization? If so, did they have it? Um, here, there's no doubt whatsoever that the position of the U.S. government would be and continues to be that when it comes to using lethal force against al-Qaeda targets and and no one in, in sort of a plain sense, no one's more al-Qaeda at the morning of that strike than Ayman al-Zawahiri himself uh, being the head of the organization, uh, that, that that's covered by the AUMF, the AUMF remains active. Now, there are those who might say, well, but we withdrew from Afghanistan and this is using force in Afghanistan. AMF doesn't say anything about geography. It talks in, in indirect terms about the entity responsible for the 9-11 attacks, which from the beginning has been interpreted to be correctly interpreted to be Al-Qaeda uh, and those who might host them. And so 
the, the, the AMS relevance to the Taliban had always been that, that second piece. Um, but as to Al Qaeda, the claim was never contingent on Afghanistan as such. We will come back to this when we talk about the international law analysis, because that's a central uh, factor in why it's so controversial from an international law perspective. But from an AUMF perspective, unless one believes, as some people do, that the AUMF became defunct, I presumably by virtue of the U.S. withdrawal from overt ground-based operations or, or ground presence in Afghanistan, uh, that's certainly not the administration's perspective. I haven't, haven't seen anybody in Congress making that claim. Can I ask a question about that? Yeah. So if 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 the argument is that it's Al Zawahiri's it's, it's Al Zawahiri's status and relationship to right Al Qaeda that is why he is still properly subject to military force in the AUMF, then at least as a matter of domestic law and the international law stuff is, gets messier. Yeah. Does does the analysis change at all if he's in London as opposed to Kabul? Uh, as I don't think, I think it changes hugely from a UN charter perspective. No, no, I, I said, right, I said international yeah. law different. But I, know, I'm but saying, like, I know some listeners need to hear that first. So okay. no, no one claims you can fire a missile but but do you think but do you think that even the domestic law question is remotely informed by the locus of the force? I don't think that AUF I don't think the AUMF takes any account of geography. Period. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, what's, the text. What's the best counter argument? I mean, I think the best counter argument is the arg is the, um, you know, insofar it's the Hamdi plurality argument that the language of the AUMF by referring to necessary and appropriate force is necessarily referring to force that is consistent with the laws of war. And so insofar as an internet, like it's a, it's an incorporation argument, right? That the AUMF is not an authorization to use force that is inconsistent with the laws of war. And so then, the, right, that the, the use ad bellum and the, the question becomes a pretty significant one. So... I, I agree that there. Uh, we both agree that there's a there's a very tricky and hotly contested, and rightly hotly contested international law set of issues under both LOAC and the UN Charter. The uh, the AUMF interpretive issue is interesting because there's there's sort of a dimension where you just sort of take that whole international law debate and you import it kind of into the AUMF, so that such that to say that there's an international law debate is to say that there's an AUMF debate. I mean that that's fine. I, I see that. Um, it's not, I, I want to be careful because some some people might have heard the reference to the language all necessary and appropriate military force. And they might think, oh, you guys are saying that maybe force isn't necessary in some locations because the host government in some locations uh, might act. Um, the language in AUMF is all necessary and appropriate force as the president may determine. And it's, it's, as, it's as blanket a gifting to the president as to the determination of what's necessary and appropriate. So I don't think necessary and appropriate does any useful constraining work on the president at, from an external perspective. Um, I think the only thing that is in the AMF, and it has to be read into it as the Hamdi plurality did, the law of armed conflict and, and from in other ways, the UN Charter, you can read them in. But that just that just brings us to the international law debate. Um, so let's Let's just finish running the traps on uh, domestic law before we turn to that. Um, an interesting point to bear in mind that hasn't really played a role here. It's not really critical to the discussion since I think certainly within the U.S. debate, the AMF is considered the beginning and the end of this analysis. 
But let's say for the sake well, of argument, except except during the Bush administration. Well, so where I'm going, I, I don't. I'm not sure I follow that. Actually, you kind of threw me with that comment. Are you saying the Bush administration wouldn't have thought the AUMF applied here? No, just that the AUMF isn't the end of the conversation, right? That the I think the Bush administration repeatedly took the position that 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 it is sufficient for our action to be authorized by the AUMF, but it's not necessary. Right. No. So there's a there's sort of a belt and suspenders dimension to this, which is the point I want to get at, which is that it, let's say for the sake of argument. The AMF, uh, for whatever reason, was thought not applicable, perhaps by dint of geography. Uh, you still have to confront the question of whether this use of force is one that, from an Article Two perspective, might be an order the president can constitutionally give, even if Congress hasn't authorized it yet. And here we get into this very classic debate that is always lurking in the background of the post-9-11 period, but largely never gets confronted head-on because of the sort of the omnipresence of the AMF, and that is, you know, just just how broad a military force authority have presidents of both parties claimed over time. Um, and I'm not I'm not inviting us to go down that whole path. I'm just flagging that no one should think that the uh, the question of AMF being on or off in this circumstance is the only part of the analysis that would uh, that would address it. All right, so turning our attention, oh, I guess we can quickly say. Fifth Amendment due process rights, et cetera, entirely irrelevant here. Non-U.S. person, not inside the United States. Yes, there are those who would argue that if we use force somewhere, it should, uh, you know, that Hellfire missile carries with it sort of the, the Bill of Rights on its nose count. Um, but that's never been the executive branch's uh, perspective, and I don't think it's consistent with how the courts have interpreted it. So, so we turn instead to international law. There's a locational question here that's pretty interesting, thanks to our withdrawal from Afghanistan, and this can get a little tangled up in the Doha Agreement as well. Uh, from a UN charter perspective, you shouldn't, this is a use of force, you shouldn't use force in international affairs absent uh, a UN Security Council authorization or a proper claim of self-defense, uh, or of course the consent of the, the host government. Obviously, well, I say obviously, seemingly did not have consent. See, I don't know that it's, Beyond the realm of possibility, we probably would never know this if it were true, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that non-Hakani leadership figures in the Taliban may have been involved in tipping off the United States, perhaps initially, and indeed may have tolerated this action, may have approved. Um, you think, you think we had consent? But yeah, so I'm saying like that. I don't want to say there's no way there was consent here, because actually I don't think it's... 100% obvious that there couldn't have been. I think that's unlikely. I know that's a little bit extreme what I'm talking about, but um, the much more likely argument, of course, is the claim that the uh, Taliban regime was either unwilling or unable. In this case, it would be unwilling uh, by dint of their apparent role, or at least members of the regime, in actually harboring the person in question, unwilling to uh, to uh, Pretermit the uh, threat associated with Al Qaeda embodied in the leader of Al Qaeda himself being sheltered there. So um, that was a claim the United States made uh, after the post 9 11 period that was hotly contested, remains hotly contested in many quarters. There are plenty of people out there who reject the idea, reject the claim that there is an unable, unwilling doctrine. But, uh, but my observation is that that claim picked up a lot of support. Uh, during the heyday of the Islamic State's presence within Syria, when a large number of countries, the United States included, 
was under the unwilling, unable aegis using force to attack the United to attack the Islamic State there. Is it but, possible there's a difference between unwilling and unable? Like one works and one doesn't? Yeah, I mean like like, you know, so I, I, I don't know. I haven't thought about this nearly as much as you have. Um, but it strikes me that it's one thing like Yemen, for example, right? It's one thing for a country to use force on the soil of another country in part of that country over which the recognized government has no effective control. Yeah, no de facto control. So it's, a, right? it's effectively a, a gap, in, a functional gap in sovereignty. Right. And so, right. So I could at least understand the argument that it is not necessarily consistent to assert sovereignty over an area over which you have no de facto sovereign control, right? I yeah. mean, that runs into trouble in lots of other respects, but but just just sort of just playing the devil's advocate for a second, right? Well, that's an interesting idea. You might say that it's more, so at the end of the day, it's all a question of what level of offense to sovereignty and the, the ideals of sovereignty embodied in the UN Charter, what level of provocation are we talking about here? You might say that, look, if, if the, the regime uh, has no de facto control over a regime anyways, it's, it's an ungoverned space. There's no sovereignty offense there because if you can't actually deliver on sovereignty in practice, then what are you complaining about? Whereas if you could, but you're choosing not to, and the other state comes in anyways, yeah, I think you can make an argument that that's a, that's a more sensitive matter. You know, personally, I'm not persuaded that the one is in and the other's out, but I think you're right. You persuaded me that there's an interesting distinction there. Somebody ought to if somebody well, has because the unwilling i mean the problem for me is with unwilling is you know russia says hey there are ukrainian terrorists hiding out in you know northern virginia but the us government isn't willing to you know arrest them and so we're going to go get them ourselves like we would never think that that right like, i mean you know it's yeah, just I mean, yeah it's subjective it's subjective and there's no no one on the outside normally to make the call i think it's actually true on both dimensions unwilling and unable that's right uh, say pakistan doesn't really have control in the fata therefore we right. can do what we need to do there right. do right. they don't they do, you right. know, pakistan you says they do like right exactly yeah exactly uh, but you put your finger on it's good for listeners who haven't engaged with this before. You definitely need to understand um, that the main policy argument for what that's worth against the unwilling and look, you can't avoid the policy dimensions that the unwilling and able argument is not based on text. It's it's a policy, I think, policy driven implication of how you effectuate and give real life and meaning to the uh, the right of self-defense. You, you've just got to read it in there lest you have these these gaps where no action can be taken and the law is going to end up being violated in any event because states aren't going to put up with it if the host state's really unwilling or unable. But by the same token, one can say, all right, well, if we're talking policy, then I have a competing policy concern, which is the exploitation by the Kremlin or the or whoever it may be next who's going to exploit this cynically making claims. That That's a very fair assessment. I think no defense of unwilling and able uh, is a effective unless you acknowledge that, yeah, that is a cost to the system, that it's it's not going to present, unwilling and able claims are not going to always present in a way where it's clear that the asserting party is factually properly predicated for that. Uh, I think here where Ayman al-Zawahiri was hanging in the home of a of, of senior Haqqani official, uh, I think the if you, if you have space at all for unwilling, I think this is a this will be one of the good case studies illustrating it. Um, 
then we turn to the question of, okay, well, what about the law of armed conflict? The United States left Afghanistan. We're not currently using force here. On the other hand, in the Doe Agreement, we I think we made clear that there were circumstances where we intended to engage in airstrikes for counterterrorism purposes, above all, Al-Qaeda, uh, counter-Al-Qaeda operations. I mean, this, is, this sort of thing is exactly the sort of possibility that led to that overt reservation of authority or claim of authority to use force. That is the possibility that once we were out, the Taliban were in fact, without ever admitting they were doing it, we're going to let Al-Qaeda have, you know, a more overt, more uh, congenial safe haven, which it seems at least in this instance they did. Um, but there's an but interpretive debate about whether what the Doha agreement authorized was, or not authorized, but foreshadowed, was U.S. intervention just if there's harboring, as opposed to harboring in circumstances that that involve operational plotting? Now, of course, we're in no position to know what Zwari was or, or was not involved in, but uh, there have been those who say, like, well, you know, there was an ambiguity in the Doe Agreement, a very purposeful ambiguity, where our position was probably meant to be construed as a pretty broad invitation to go after al-Qaeda targets if their heads popped up, as happened here, whereas the Taliban perspective was, no, no, you, you shouldn't be coming in unless there's actually something in the nature of caught in the act in flagrante delicto. And here, and here, you know, maybe maybe that wasn't the case. Maybe we don't know what Zwari was doing. Maybe it wasn't operationally involved. Um, anyways, so there's a Doha agreement question. There's a little bit of a UN charter question. And then there's just the question of, does the law of armed conflict govern in this circumstance? And it's funny because for two decades, despite all the endless post 9-11 controversy over where the law of armed conflict was applicable, throughout most of this period, the one place you could, throughout all those years, say like, well, there is an armed conflict there, that the conditions of continuity and intensity and organization were satisfied even for the relatively picky observers would have been in Afghanistan. But the war there is more or less over, right? And so now Afghanistan looks functionally for, for the legal question, no different than say Yemen, Pakistan, S Somalia sometimes, uh, places where there's episodic airstrike activity against terrorism targets and, right. and episodic violence carried out by those targets against others. Although interestingly, query whether that's true in Afghanistan right now. Right. Anyways, it forces it forces into the uh, beyond the battlefield box, the one place that used to be the acknowledged battlefield. And so it revives all those earlier debates and they all map out in, in, in ways that are just like you would imagine in this context. There are those who say that the armed conflict is wherever Al-Qaeda is found, in which case this is fine as a law of war analysis. Um, and then there are those who think, no, 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 the law of armed conflict stopped applying in Afghanistan some months ago. Can I, can I, wouldn't it be, I mean, can I just point out that, that whatever the right answer is, it sure is, it, it sure ought to be discomfiting that the domestic law question is answered one way or the other by a 60 word statute Congress passed 21 years ago. You know, the fact that it's I'm not sorry, I don't find the passage of time that problem. You know, I you know, I favor recurring, refreshing I know. for a host of reasons. I but know. I think this this isn't the fact pattern in the case that alarms me from that perspective. Or or alarm's not the right word, that 
that I think is a serious reason for concern in that perspective, that the kind of the single person on the planet Earth who's most squarely within the original intent of the 2001 AMF is literally that guy. I know. But so, so, so imagine, imagine if the United States developed intelligence in 1950. So the war with Germany does not legally end until October 19th, 1951. Yeah, I thought school didn't start till the 22nd. Imagine if the United States developed intelligence in the fall of 1950, placing Adolf Eichmann in Argentina. And imagine if instead of the Mossad going to kidnap him, right, Truman sends OSS, or I guess by then it's CIA, um, right? And CIA, instead of kidnapping Eichmann, just kills him, um, right? Is that under, a law? Under, under color of the December 1941 declaration? Yes. Is that? But 1950 yes. had it, it was not terminated by 1950. You know, this I, that's why I, that's why I started with the war with Germany didn't end until October 19th, 1951. That's why I picked 1950, right? I mean, I just oh, wait, I, and we're stipulating away the UN Charter question. Um, I'm just asking as a matter of domestic law. Like, do we really think, as a matter of domestic law, that when Congress declared war against Germany, it was authorizing uses of military force against? you know, German soldiers, even five and a half years after Germany, the country had surrendered and ceased to exist. But hadn't hadn't we had a, not just an armistice, but hadn't we had a formal surrender agreement with the Germans before your hypothetical date? Yes, but we tried, we tried at least some Germans for violating the surrender. I mean, actually that was, as you know, that was the actual charge in Eisentrager. <laughs> no, so I think the, um, answer, the answer to your question is that the declaration stayed on, the, you know the date, there's some formal date where, where the authority terminates in October 19th, 1951. There you go. So up to that point, we were continuing to exercise a variety of law of war based authorities involving criminal justice, but we were no longer exercising kinetic force authorities. In but could we, is my question. Well, no, because because there was a surrender agreement, because that, that supervening formal legal act had occurred. We have nothing of the kind, either de jure or de facto, with core yeah. Al Qaeda, although core Al Qaeda is closed, it seems like. But, but we're not there yet. So so your point, I just want to make sure, I mean, this is interesting. I just want to make sure. So your point yeah. is that the politically negotiated surrender agreement. The right? international agreement between sovereigns. Yes, but but that is not, not ratified. It's a legal instrument. Is it? It's not ratified. Is it a domestic? Does it have the force of law in the United States? It's not a treaty. It's not ratified by the Senate. It's not signed by the president, right? Um, but, it, but it's clear. Would, wouldn't you agree? It's clearly meaningful as a, in terms of the law of war. And as you were saying earlier, the domestic authorizing statutes should be read in light of the law of war principles. So a formal surrender agreement, I think, should have the effect. Uh, now, obviously, there will be self defense and so forth. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Set that all aside. It's funny. I had not. I had not thought of the formal surrender agreement defeating the statutory authority Congress had delegated. That's interesting. I think it completes it. I wouldn't say defeats it. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I am obviously making I mean, there, I mean, there are a raft. I mean, there are a raft of interesting. I mean, then there, then to me, there's a raft of interesting questions about the scope of the government's legal authority between the surrender and the formal yeah. cessation and the formal termination of the war. And the categorical distinction I'm suggesting, and I really am just, I've never yeah, done yeah. it, we're yeah. making it up as we go, yeah. uh, 
think there's a sensible categorical distinction between war prosecution, kinetic war prosecution authorities, which should come to an end except for self-defense and responsive right. matters. Right. Right. When there's a surrender agreement, I mean, what else? What else is their side negotiating for other than to no longer have their personnel be attacked as a matter of first resort, right? Um, so I think that part is one of the consequences from a law of war perspective of a surrender agreement that's properly brought to fruition. But there are a whole slew of detention-related unwinding authorities and consequence imposition authorities. So, so the protracted process of repatriation. Yeah. which states famously as that as this very period is the classic example of how many years are permitted to, to get this effectuated and the imposition of criminal penalties for war crimes and such. So it, it, it holds together pretty well from my perspective, at least on first blush. Yeah, you know, Mary Dudjack um, at Emory has this fantastic book called Wartime. And um, I'm, Wartime. I wonder, I, I you know, I've, it's been a long time since I looked at the book. I'm trying to remember. I mean, it raises the question of whether there's, given that we're never going to have a formal surrender under the AUMF, right? Is there ever a moment? Is there anything that stands in the place of that, I guess, is a question. Yeah, but Right. Well, okay. So this is a question that then uh, Defense Department General Counsel Jay Johnson, the wonderful yep. Jay Johnson, uh, stood in front of the Oxford Union and gave a speech. Oh, the of, Oxford Union speech. Oh, yeah, it's it's such an interesting moment in national security law history. So interesting. This is just before the blow up of the Islamic State. Twenty like moment, fall twenty thirteen, maybe no fall twenty twelve. Earlier, earlier than that, I think. Yeah. yeah. At a moment where it made sense to say, you know. We've kind of been we've been doing really well against Al Qaeda, notwithstanding the proliferation of franchises and so forth. You could make the argument that we'd succeeded for so long in degrading the core Al Qaeda entity. So what Jay suggested in that speech, and it was sort of an administration trial balloons, at least the way most of us interpreted it, he said there will come a time, and he was very careful to say, we're not saying we're there yet, but we're close enough to where we need to talk about this, in effect. I'm paraphrasing. Um, uh, there will come a time where, as a functional matter, we have defeated them, and and then it's just a question of what comes next, and and a political question of does anyone have the the nerve to actually say, all right, I'm I'm declaring victory against Al Qaeda. Oh no, the next day something happens, uh, and he was he was saying that we really do need to get back. You know, contra Mary's work, we got to get back to peacetime, to normal time. And by the way, Mary's book's awesome. Uh, wartime's signal contribution is to really thoroughly unpack and drive home the uh, the ambiguities and indeed the the illusoriness of the distinction between normal peacetime and wartime. It's it's not that there's no variations and you can't tell the difference between noon and midnight, but there's I guess what I would say Mary's contributions say mostly it's dusk and dawn. And, and, you, and you don't want to get too enamored of the formalities of the powers are on, the powers are off, because that's not actually how the functional world works. Anyway, Jay, Jay threw this all out there. He said, we're, we need to get back to where law enforcement and other tools are the That speech tools. was 10 years ago. I know. And so then, like, you know, it seemed like this was setting the table for possibly changing some major policies. The Obama administration, as we've talked about many times on this show, was so different from the Biden administration in that it talked a lot about this change and paid a political price for it. And indeed, the blow up and the emergence of the Islamic State also just killed that whole conversation, by the way. That was the end of that. Um, 
the Biden administration has just forsworn talking about this sort of thing publicly. Yes, it's totally disappeared from the conversation. It has just, it, which was kind of kind of brilliant as a policy matter, as a ma- matter of managing the politics of your policy. It was brilliant to just stop talking about it and give up on the idea yep. that you're going to reap benefits with your base. Just change the things or slow roll or reduce the pace of the things that you're not so sure you're comfortable with and don't talk about it. And it doesn't activate the political antibodies in the same way. Um, by the way, I have a really important breaking update on something we talked about earlier. Did the Mets finish off the Reds? The Mets won. The Mets won. <laughs> uh, is, that, is that six out of seven? Um, it is 13 out of 15. Ooh, man. Okay, explain it to me. What? They were they were not they weren't stumbling, but they were cooling off a little bit, and the Braves had an incredible run. And I think maybe the all-star break kind of sucked the wind out of the Braves' sails a little bit. I don't know. I, I, I mean, we lost, the, we lost the first two games coming out of the break, but we've, we're 13-2 and two since then. Listeners uh, all over America are like, dudes, you're not at the Frivolity stage yet. Okay. Don't start talking about this. Should we, pivot to, should we pivot to my latest loss in court? Yes. Talk about Larrabee. What has happened? So, um, so as you know, Karen and I were in the middle of the northwestern corner of Vermont last week for our annual family sojourn to family camp. Um, hey, near where Heather and I got engaged oh so long ago. Where do you guys get engaged? Uh, a little north of Burlington. Where? Uh, Judge Sack, who I was clicking for at the time, gave us uh, access to his vacation home. Thank you, oh. Judge. That, so, hey, so see, the- see, kids, you want a clerk? So the place, so the place, Tyler Place, where we went, is in like literally, it's the it's the last town before you get to Canada. On okay, I-9. we were not, we were not that far up, but pretty um, up there. So anyway, but so we're we're literally in the middle of what were we playing? Were we playing dodgeball? Um, I think we we're playing dodgeball. Um, like growing up dodgeball. Is Karen sitting right there having to listen to all this? Karen is sitting right here having to listen to all this. But wait, the story for why Karen is sitting right here having to listen to all this is actually kind of funny. So, um. You know, we were gone for five weeks and Roxy, our pug, was home and really, really missed, I think I can say this safely, me. Um, and so I was sitting out in the living room while we were recording and Roxy was really upset that I wasn't in bed. Um, like so you were I, doing it wrong? What's that? Like, like you were not like fulfilling the conditions for the house to be put in order for the night? Correct. Like Roxy was basically whimpering because she was demanding that I come into bed. Um, Roxy, meanwhile, is now lying on my foot sleeping. Wow. Um, but that, that required me to come into bed and, and harass Karen. So, so you, you know, I'm always out walking our neighborhood. I'm out, I'm out on neighborhood patrol all the time. You guys had, a, I think, a dog walker maybe? Because I think several times I passed somebody who seemed to be. It was our babysitter. Okay, that's awesome. So, our baby, if, so the, the girl's babysitter, babysitter was also our house sitter. If your babysitter said there's some like. You know, middle-aged guy who looks like he thinks he's security patrol for the neighborhood who was eyeing the dog. That was me. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you an eye on your house while you were away. Anyway, so there we are playing a dodgeball, and I get the alert because one of the VIP um, accounts on my on my phone is Pacer. <laughs> um, so we, and I got the alert that that so the first thing that comes through is the or is the judgment, not the opinion, um, and it's like it takes ten minutes before the opinion comes through. It's like what wow. happened? <laughs> so all I know from the judgment is that I lost two to one. So this is this oh. is a case. This is the the DC version of the the uh, court martialing retirees for post retirement offenses, where we won in the district court. The government appealed. 
Oral argument was last October before a three-judge D.C. Circuit panel comprising uh, Judge Tatel, Judge Rao, and Judge Walker. Um, anyway, to make a long story short, as I think I predicted after the oral argument, lost yeah. two to one. Judge Rao wrote for the majority, mostly, um, and her analysis basically had um, two major points. Um, major point number one um, was rejecting the government's principal argument, um, mm. which was um, that the Congress's placement of the Fleet Marine Corps Reserve in you know subject to the UCMJ was entitled to deference. Um, she actually says no, it's not. In a part of the opinion that Judge Walker did not join, but Judge Tatel did. Um, so, you know, if you're reading it with if you, inverted the yeah. So if you skip the first paragraph, you might have thought, you know, to this point we were winning, right? Like the, you know, no government, <laughs> no deference. Um, but then, then the majority, and now it's Rao and Walker, go off on this extended discursus of sort of pre-revolutionary English practice with regard to so-called half-pay soldiers. Oh, um, that's interesting. And there are only two problems. Well, there are only three problems to me with that analysis. Um, one, um, as Robert Leiter from George Mason um, has explained in a series of blog posts, um, they get that they get that history wrong, <laughs> oh. which is not shocking given that no one briefed it. I mean, like the you know the the stuff the majority opinion's discussion of pre-revolutionary English practice is nowhere in the briefs because the government never even argued this. That's um, so problem number one, they got the history wrong. It wasn't nearly as supportive, right? The the sort of <sighs> Judge Rao uses this history to try to make the point that you're either a soldier or you're not, right? And that there were plenty of folks who were treated as soldiers even when they were like off duty, right? In pre-revolutionary English practice. Um, the problem is Robert points out in his post is actually there were three statuses, right? There was professional soldier, there was non-professional soldier and there was civilian and retirees are actually much look a lot more like non-professional soldiers reservists right or militiamen and women um and that really complicates the founding era version so problem number one is that problem number two um then there's this whole ratification of the constitution thing with you know some rights that might yeah. <laughs> So it, it was the claimed relevance of the story, the contested history of the half-pay soldiers that, well, what was the claimed relevance? Was that supposed to be part of the backdrop that Congress legislated against in crafting? And, and basically, it, it's, all toward, it's all toward what Judge Rao articulates as the new military status test. And for her, the military status test is whether you are subject to orders. Um, and so retirees, although they're not generally subject to orders, they're subject to one order, right? They're subject to a recall order. Yeah. And so right. for Judge Rao, you are constitutionally in the land and naval forces if you can be punished for disobeying even one military order. So she was offering that analysis as an originalist take on what yes. constitutes the boundaries of the land and naval forces. Correct. Correct. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Makes sense to do the inquiry, but of course, but you that's do, why. But that's why it's so significant. Right. right. That's why it's so significant that I think the history is wrong. Um, sure. Now, I, I don't think I don't think the history is dispositive, right? For because even and that's not because of methodological opposition to originalism. It's because, right, the Supreme Court has actually said quite a lot about military jurisdiction, and I feel like 
some of what the Supreme Court has said ought to be relevant. So, so problem number one is that they get the history wrong. Problem number two is that the sort of the Constitution seems to upend some of that history. And then, Bobby, problem number three is the Supreme Court's own jurisprudence, right, in the 1950s and 60s, which repeatedly rejected these kinds of formalisms, right, as the basis for military jurisdiction. So anyway, make a long story short, we lost. Judge Tatel wrote a short, but I think very punchy dissent, um, which I think is exactly right. He says, I agree with a lot of what the majority says. I just disagree that, you know, one, this history matters, and two, that it supports their result. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, he thought other it was, than that, it was great. Well, well, so, well framed. So, so I, I guess, you know, you guys are going to try to fight on, you have a, you may go on bonk or you may try to go on bonk. You may go for the, the Supremes. Uh, either way, you're going to take at least one more bite at the apple. I will. I, I don't, we're not done. <laughs> I, figured. Um, I, I mean, I, I think anyone who knows the DC circuit, um, you know, a, a total dissent from a Rao Walker majority opinion that rejects the government's principal argument and comes up with its own um yeah might might be some fodder for for a petition for rehearing on bonk well and, and of course this is this one this is a topic that may sound a little uh, oh how should we say a little obscure um until you start thinking about all sorts of current fact patterns that cut both ways ideologically yeah. Yeah. everyone everyone right. can find a right. general so officer on tv somewhere denouncing a president so Tatel, i mean so Tatel actually, Tatel actually made that point in his dissent Tatel says like you know there are hundreds of military officers who use contemptuous words toward trump there are hundreds who are using contemptuous words toward biden like you know yeah, this really matters uh, right that's a lot as as a uh, potential well but the other thing is, but, but really the other thing is, uh, sorry just the other thing i was gonna say bobby is the majority opinion i don't know if it realizes that it did this but like it opens the door to a massive expansion of the status quo, because under Judge Rao's logic, Congress could expand the UCMJ to encompass inactive reservists, um, right? As of today, it doesn't, right? As of today, if you are an inactive reservist, you are not subject to the UCMJ while you are inactive, um, right? Unless you're on inactive duty training. Um, but by her logic, that's just a statutory choice, not a, even though there's actually pretty good evidence that it was a constitutionally inspired distinction. Um, so this has implications not just for the 2 million you know, people currently living in the United States who are retired service members. It has implications for the millions of reservists who now face court-martial, not just when they're up, but when they're down too. Yeah, I, I got to say the whole thing- or could, I'm sorry, could face court-martial. I find the prospect- I find the prospect so unsettling, all the more so because all the things we're talking about earlier. We we live in a time that is that is rife with efforts to silence people with whom we disagree, and this this is this seems like a little bit of a far fetched scenario that that people who once served would in some fashion end up getting in trouble for expressing their core political speech. Uh, in vigorous negative ways um, and and yet I think if we've learned anything it's like you never know what might be coming next and so I, I am concerned and uh, I think you guys should press your case onward as I'm sure you will um, so under the under the federal rules of appellate procedure we have 45 days to seek rehearing on bonk 
Nice. So nice. Oh, just add, um, add that to your list of things. I like to imagine that somewhere in your home office is like this sort of Gantt chart of projects. <laughs> it's like every one of them blinking red. I can think of at least one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I could think of I could think of more than one. Um, so the the so, so really quickly, just while we're on military justice, so we had talked before briefly also about the question of whether after the Supreme Court's 2020 decision in Ramos versus Louisiana, which incorporated the jury unanimity requirement right against the states, whether that might also apply to courts martial, which are now the last criminal trials in the United States where you can have non-unanimous convictions, right? Under the Military Justice Act of 2016, you can receive a life sentence in a court-martial that convicted you by a six to two vote. Um, Anyway, so there had been this concerted effort. I had been part of this concerted effort to get CAF, the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces, to agree to take up this question, um, mostly because in order to get this question to the Supreme Court, CAF has to agree to take up this question. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so about 10 days ago, CAF agreed to take up this question. Hey, that's great. Um, Not in, so it's interesting. They actually, they granted a different case from my case. Um, (laughs) So it's just you they don't like? uh, Apparently, but they they also, they eventually granted my case as well. So my case is now Um, a trailer to the principal case. That's great. Um, Your case survives and you don't have to do as much of the work. Exactly. And (laughs) And we can go to the Supreme Court. Um, nice. so anyway, suffice to say, there's going to be sort of further interesting develop for, for those who listen to this podcast for it's ever so awkward, um, divergence into military justice. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting case. Are. I think it was just set for argument in late October, the case, uh, us versus Anderson in CAF. You know, it's, it's funny because our, our, these military cases have become sustaining members of the podcast. And I will observe that our erstwhile sustaining members uh, at Guantanamo. uh, They're still there. They're still there. And yet we're not getting, has everyone just succumbed to exhaustion? Like what? (laughs) Um, Can I actually, can I say one more thing about CAF before we, before we, before we lose that thread and segue to frivolity. So, so one last thing about CAF, because I actually think this is an important point. Um, so in Anderson, like every other case before CAF right now, they had to call back one of the retired senior judges because there's currently an unfilled vacancy on CAF. CAF has five seats, right? It sits on bonk. The judges serve 15-year terms. Um, Chief Judge Stuckey's term expired last July 31st, so we're now over a year <clears throat> with a vacancy. And the reason for the vacancy is Josh Hawley. Um, um. What because now? President Biden nominated, um, you might know her, Tia Johnson. Yeah, Tia's great. Yes, Tia's fantastic. So, did not um, know she was the nominee. What's the holdup? So, in January, President Biden nominated Tia Johnson, um, a former JAG lawyer, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, who's um, a fantastic person and a highly skilled and qualified lawyer with the, all the right experience. She she sailed through committee. She was reported out of the Senate Armed Services Committee favorably, but a certain senator from Missouri is holding all DOD nominations. And oh, Kath, sure, we don't need the DOD people to be confirmed. Right. And CAF is technically, you know, because yeah. it comes out of SASC, CAF is in the bucket of DOD nominations. And do we know what is he using this leverage to achieve? There's some explanation that I've lost track of that, like, he's 
angry about something and wants the Biden administration to do something that it's never going to do. I guess um, I like least about senatorial privileges and all the various non-majoritarian uh, elements of Senate life. It's the ability of single senators mm -hmm. to decide they're going to, is that blue slipping? Is that the phrase? Um, whatever it is, uh, deciding they're going to hold up these, the it's, it seems like if you don't like the filibuster, right? How do you, you feel like about right, these right. single-person right. privilege-based, right. comedy-based things? Well, and here's the concept: right. preventing a president who's duly elected yeah. from getting an up or down vote on their nominees. I mean, well, we're, not, we're but not only that, like, and not not just an executive nominee. I mean, here we're talking about what's basically a judicial nominee. Right, that's being blocked by you know what, and not just I mean I mean Tia Johnson, if this ever goes to a vote, will be approved oh, by unanimous right consent. Well, I mean, no, from what you're saying, it sounds like there's probably any number of people who are being hung up. I, yes, I'm sure there are many people listening, at least some people listening, who have been nominated and know full well how it's like. No, this is this happens all the time in D.C. People who are not in any way themselves the subject of any concern get held up because they're conveniently available leverage i understand that's that's part of how it goes there i'm saying that's just a really unwelcome and unfortunate part that nobody would build in by design actually if you're designing a system um speaking of hall just really quickly who i really should have tripped in the hallway when he was a 1l um and i was a 3l um so he also we got word that um his new book um he that they, they announced his new book bobby manhood colon the masculine virtues america needs now i only bring this up for one reason this is not this is not this is not meant to take a shot at josh hawley um his but, but no 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 his publication date is may 16th 2023 is that your publication date? that's too? my publication date. <laughs> is, he, is he trying to like big fit you on that day so steve do you have a lot of stuff in your your book about the shadow docket about masculinity and manhood and do you do you use words like man and manhood a lot in your book suffice it to say my editor was not exactly concerned that our audiences are overlapping i feel like on amazon it's got to do one of those deals where like customers who bought this also bought, also bought. <laughs> please Dear listeners, if anyone gets that recommendation engine output, please take a screenshot. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, um, my, okay my we'll have to do a little bit of a, a pool, like for when the time comes, and maybe it's out there. Wait, wait, is the book already available for pre order? No, I was going to say my okay. book isn't available for pre order right. yet. I can't wait to see what shows up with you and whether we can guess. Like, what else would somebody who's buying Steve's book on Amazon, what else would they pick up while they're in the process? By the way, if my book was available for pre-order, the title of this episode would be, here's the a link to pre-order my book. Rest <laughs> <laughs> assured, there'll be intensive uh, marketing. This is going to be like an all book promotion podcast soon. Seriously, episode 241, buy my book. Hey, you know, one day, one day people will be able to buy my book. I've, I've had that contract for a long time. And if my editor at Oxford is listening, I swear now that I'm Dean, I'm actually much more likely to produce that thing. So Much more likely. Hey, there there are 10 chapters that have been fully written for years. It's the final two. And and that whole cybersecurity thing that came up and I decided to focus on for about five years there. Speaking of red lights flashing. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes um, all right. Should we, should we get frivolous for a minute? Yes, we should now get frivolous. Yes, we should. All get right, more frivolous. Uh, 
Uh, thanks for listening. If you're going to tune out now, but for those who are sticking around, first of all, okay, I, I saw the the Mets have now got I think five and a half, maybe six games on the, the Braves. The Braves have been coming in hot. I thought I was I was not liking the way that was trending, and we seem to have righted the ship there. And I'm not sure what to attribute that to. Maybe so it's just the, the Braves' run was too improbably hot to continue. I mean, listen, they the Mets have won kind of this weekend, right? The Mets have won six out of the eight. Six out of their last eight games with the Braves, um, right? It, during the Braves' hot streak, they're, they, I don't remember the exact record, Bobby, but it's something like they're 49-16 and 16 against everyone other than the Mets and 2-6 and six against the Mets. Um, yeah, right? so that was the five out of the six. Now, why was that five – or four out of five? Why was that a five-game back-to-back? What was that so about? They're doing this with the, because, the, remember, baseball had to cancel the first two series or the first two or three series of the season. And so they've rescheduled those first couple of series okay. by fold by squeezing, compacting a couple of series in August, and I think adding one series in October. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have we have another one of these coming up with the Phillies, I think, this weekend, um, where we have like a doubleheader, a, a scheduled doubleheader on Saturday. Well, truly, nothing could have been better for the Mets this season to have five games and take four out of five. I mean, that's crushing. It's also, I mean, it's crazy when you take two out of three and then you've got Scherzer and Degrom as like the pitchers. Yeah. To pitch. So the other, so the other thing was, so I was, you know, this is sort of back to the, I was driving all the way home from Vermont Saturday and Sunday, right? So I was in the car. the whole way. Doubleheader. So Saturday was fantastic because I was in the car for like 15 hours. And eight of those hours, including the last four, right, were Mets. So it was great. God, God, how I wish that I could control. So we're on Zoom recording this, and I can see you. And how I wish I actually had a camera so I could swing that camera right then over to Karen to have her say eight hours. So Karen, Karen, Karen. just just to bring the play-by-play full, 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 full to the present. Karen, about 15 minutes ago, dug out her noise cancel on headphones, um, <laughs> turned them up to maximum. Many um, a listener has made a similar choice. And is now watching something on Netflix. She's a smart person. And now, she, now she's asking if she just heard her name through her noise canceling headphones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you got, so you have the spousal model, I see. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that's, that's now uh, the book. Let's give, give me a quick book review. Um, oh, so um, Brad Snyder, who teaches at Georgetown Law School. Hi, Brad. Um, oh, the cover there, there's Felix himself. Has a really good new biography that is out this month called Democratic Justice about Felix Frankfurter. Um, and and I, I mean, Brad's a beautiful writer and he tells great stories. I will just say, I had never thought of myself as a particular fan of Frankfurter. And Brad's book has me more positively disposed toward Frankfurter than I'd been previously. I mean, in all seriousness, how much of that's a sign of the times where yes, in the current right. moment you're appreciating the virtues, the, the, yeah. Judicial. So, well, so, so, sorry. So Brad's whole, explain yeah. for our listeners who were like, what, what are y'all talking about? So Frankfurter is particularly associated with notions of judicial constraint, judicial restraints. Judicial restraint. I mean, he was he was often portrayed as the villain of the Warren Court because you know even though he was a progressive Democrat, he was the leading progressive lawyer of the 1920s. Um, right, that he was often dissenting from some of the you know the Warren Court's more aggressive progressive decisions. And you know, Brad's Brad's 
argument, which I think is is incredibly fair, is that Frankfurter was actually being mostly consistent. Um, and that, you know, there are reasons, you know, perhaps, I mean, I, Brad doesn't say this overtly, but it's, it's, he does sort of hit you over the head with this. Now's an interesting moment, right? To think about some of the virtues of, well, of like, I mean, this is, this is something that we both teach our students that, and one of the reasons why we both teach so much history, the political valence of judicial activism versus restraint right. varies generationally. It depends yes. a lot on who's on the court and what's going on in the political branches. And so Frankfurter comes of age in the in the period of the Four Horsemen and the period in which Roosevelt's agenda, which Frank Frankfurter is this big New Dealer, and is very much of the Rooseveltian perspective that the uh, the Supreme Court's willingness to strike down all these pieces, especially of the federal legislative. Uh, package uh, was fundamentally anti-democratic or or, right. or or based on reading ideas into the Constitution that were beyond what were fairly there. And it was an imposition of policy preference, a very sort of Holmesian perspective on these yes. things. Yes. And, and then I think it's immensely to his credit, credit intellectually that later on when the political valence and ideological directionality of things flipped around and the court was was active in striking down or, or imposing limitations on democratically elected preferences. Uh, he proved to be equally committed, even even when it was less popular in his own circumstances. A lot of a lot of justices don't have that stick-to-itiveness. It's mm -hmm. yeah. The other thing I was gonna say though is what really comes through. So the to me, some of the richest chapters, perhaps because it was the stuff I knew the least, was pre-court years, right, was like Frankfurter from like, you know, 1920 to 1933 to FDR's election. And one of the things that, that I found, um, for obvious reasons, um, um, interesting is that Frankfurter is actually one of the leading public critics of the court while he's practicing before it. Right. That like, you know, he argues a series of cases. He argues Adkins versus Children's Hospital, which, you know, as you know, is one of the big, you know, Lochner sort of era yeah. presents of the 1920s. Um, and he even as he's, you know, belittling some of the justices and tearing apart their opinions in the pages of the New Republic. Um, and it just it strikes me that like, you know, that model of. There's a tension, I think, that law professors who practice in the court are often confronting, which is how critical can it, how critical is it appropriate to be of the court? And I think there's actually a lot to say about the the Frankfurter precedent. That's very interesting. Well, I, I know you haven't censored yourself, um, but <laughs> I, 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 oh, okay, <laughs> you're like we're getting Steve Light all this time. <laughs> heavens. I did not realize. I, I, I do not. I well, and, and it raises the question, was there more Frankfurter would have said too? Right. I mean, hard hard though it may be. Well, it's hard to imagine that there's anything Frankfurter didn't say. Um, uh, hard though it may be to believe, I do not say literally every word that pops into my head. Hmm? Hmm? <laughs> I'm arching an eyebrow skeptically. <laughs> I'm just, I, you know, maybe I do in class, but I'm not sure I do on the podcast. <laughs> Um, speaking Thinking of class, of yes. Yes. Okay, so what do you got? Way. So I finished, you will be proud of me, Dean Chesney. I finished my civil procedure syllabus today. <laughs> hey, all right. All right. Are you excited? I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. It's going to be 
it, it's going to be so weird for you to have one else as you're accustomed to, but in a different topic than come on. I'm so excited. So, I mean, I've taught Civ Pro. You guys have a very understanding administration. I really do. But also, I mean, I, I, listen, I've taught Civ Pro before. It's just, it was a very long time ago. It was, <laughs> it was so long ago. It was before Iqbal. Um, so I used to teach it too, actually. Um, but at Wake Forest, beloved Wake Forest, we split it up. I don't know if they still do where at Miami somebody, too. somebody else did all, you know, the, the no fun eerie stuff. And then I, I did the rules. I was like, okay, I don't know about all that, but we're going to talk about depositions now and complaints and motions and such. Um, well, good for you. And thanks for taking that on. Uh, your students are very lucky. It is going to be one, one thing everybody should know about Steve is that um, Steve's amazing qualities as a teacher uh, land every bit as well with students, no matter their their policy and political persuasions. Um, Although those, I suspect that will be even less than you in Civ Pro. Back it up. It's, it's, he's amongst always our most popular teachers. Yeah, most, but... but 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 I'm looking forward to not having evaluations that are constant that are that are complaining about my politics. I feel like that's less likely to happen. Oh, why, why in the world do you think you're not going to get that <laughs> when talking about you know dismissals of forum nonconvenience? Oh, you seem to be assuming a a, a sort of a, a South Dakota v. Dole style germaneness nexus <laughs> <laughs> rule that will be applied by the students in filling out those evals. Um, right. And then my and then my other my other class is a seminar on my book, The Shadow Docket. <laughs> Ah, it's awesome. That's going to be great. What are you teaching, Dean? Not a thing for the first Whoa. time. Well, it's basically 20, it's 20 something years. Are you going to wander in the classrooms just because you miss it? I think it's going to be really hard for me, actually. Um, I got into this. I got into this to teach first right. and foremost, and everything else is secondary to that. I know that sounds weird since I just took a job at the school that requires me not to teach for a while, but I will be back. And there are other things at a certain point you want to get involved in. But um, I'm really, really sorry not to be teaching this fall. And that's going to be a little hard for me. Happily, um, my cybersecurity course is in awesome hands. Uh, my former student and one of the smartest, most capable people I've ever taught, David Springer, who works now for Dropbox doing cybersecurity, He's taking over the cybersecurity law and policy core course, which is a real, really, I mean, it's a fun course because it's as much policy as it is law. You get students from all over the campus. You have computer science next to business, next to engineering, next to law, next to LBJ public affairs. It's a great course. David's going to have a good time. He'll do a great job with it. Um, and then, you know, con law is in the hands of our colleagues. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, it's funny, I guess. How long has it been since neither one of us was teaching the National Security Law course? So our friend Adam Klein, our colleague Adam Klein's got National Security Law, um, and and you and I will be on the sidelines, temporarily, no doubt. Oh well, as long as he uses my book. No, just kidding. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, no comment on whether I was still using it towards the end there. You know, I love using my own materials. Uh, I know, I know. Um, all right. Well, listen, we actually did a real episode. Yeah. How about that? Um, although we never did find episode 222, so we'll have to maybe keep next, looking. Maybe next week, next Monday night, 222 will turn up. Ooh, episode 224, colon, we found episode 222. <laughs> it should be titled episode 222, not the 223 you're looking for. Oh, I just remembered somebody. Who was it on Twitter? Which of our listeners turned us on to from a certain point of view? This unbelievable book and even better audiobook by the way that was roxy snoring if you just heard that over my <laughs> microphone <laughs> i did hear that i was wondering um 
I don't know if you you saw this. I know your Twitter is a little bit busy, but one of our listeners said you guys will appreciate this, and it's a book that take. It's called From a Certain Point of View, in honor of a famous line from Ben Kenobi, and it takes up all these characters from Star Wars, and and basically does short stories. They got all these great authors mm-hmm. to write short stories. You know, from the point of view of like the young Tuscan Raider, who's who's the one that whacks uh luke it's got a job there's a java r5d4 the red r2 unit type unit that uh almost got bought it's unbelievable there's even an there's even an imperial officer a woman who's like a master of work in the bureaucracy and the paperwork who's trying to help the guy who says don't fire there's no life forms aboard when when 3po and r2d2 are escaping and he's freaking out he's like darth vader's gonna choke me out once they figure out i'm the guy that said don't fire and she and she's like what were you afraid you know were you conserving lasers Why did you fire? <laughs> Dude, this, this thing is genius and like they've got like neil patrick harris and all these people reading out the chapters i could not believe i didn't know about this before so I feel bad. I don't have my phone. Wait, I do have my phone with me. I will try to find so I can give due credit here. Um, but this sounds right up your alley, actually. So I could use some amusement, so that's good. Yes, yes, yes. All right, do you have anything else fun coming I really time? don't. I'm writing a cert petition this week. Oh, what what about? Uh, people who have been paying attention to the podcast will know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I... Darn it, I can't. Find, so I did see that uh, uh, Travis Stanford asked us if we were going to be talking about the uh, the Andor uh, trailer, the second. Trailer. I have not seen. I have not seen the trailer. Okay, I watched it because Travis said to watch it. It's, it looks good. Okay. So Travis, my reaction was two thumbs up. Although I'm only showing one on the screen here. You know, it also starts two weeks from tomorrow. School for our kids. House of the Dragon. Oh yes. Okay, that, that we will be on top of. I don't know. I haven't been on top of Westworld. I have no idea what's happening on Westworld. Yeah, I haven't started it on that. I'm I'm sure we'll we'll get to that. But... So the one show Karen and I actually have been making time for. I'm sure this is not going to shock anyone. We've been loving Only Murders in the Building. Oh, I love it. A hundred percent. Okay, um, we can talk about that. We're two episodes into season two. How far? Oh, well, I can't. No, we can't. Because I can't. I don't want to spoil stuff. Because oh, we're all the way caught up. Oh, you're all the way caught up. Yeah. All right, we'll we'll get there. This is a uh, our whole household's in on that. Um, so, it's a yeah. lot of fun. All right. I'm, I'm really feeling bad. That I can't find the, uh, who was it that told me about this wonderful, wonderful thing? In uh, case you're wondering, you're now waiting to, for the sign off on this week's episode of National Security Law Podcast while Bobby scrolls his Twitter. <laughs> Normally, Steve is the one scrolling Twitter while we're talking, but he's really good at like just continuing on talking. And I was going to say, what do you mean normally? Just <laughs> <laughs> not adept at it like you are. All right, I guess I give up on this. Somebody, we appreciate you, so that's all there is to it. Why don't you fit? Why don't you put it in the show notes? That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Maybe next week. Well, if, right, we, re- if we record next week. All right, Bobby. What are the odds we actually drop an episode by the end of next week? You know what? Let's look at my calendar. Next Monday night. The channel calendar. Yeah. No, we'll do it. Next Monday is a busy. Next Monday is a busy, busy day. Yeah, that's the first day of orientation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Good times. All right. I think we've really uh, kind of dragged this out. If anyone who's still listening, we love you. I will just say that if, in fact, the government comes to search your house because they have probable cause, um, you know, sorry. <laughs> and otherwise, stay safe out there, everybody. He's at Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve underscore Vladik. It's too late. And the Mets have the best record in the Major League Baseball besides the Dodgers. Adios, y'all. Yay.